uh, earlier this week, I was hanging out with a friend of mine. He's about 15 years older than me. And he's one of those friends that he does not know how to do shallow conversation. I don't know if you have any friends like this, but he will not talk sports or weather or how's the job. Like you sit down and he just like, peers into the depths of your soul and it's like, how's your marriage? How's your heart? How's your faith? What sins have you committed this week? And I'm like, bro, like, bro, like let, let me breathe. And I don't know if you have any friends like this, but I love this dude. But every time I sit down with him, it's like, I've gotta just kinda get, gotta get reoriented, get my bearings. And so I sit down and he just starts going after it. And, and he asked me this question that I didn't see coming, honestly, but it just, it does what any good question will do. It, it disarms you. It causes you to just kind of really sit and think. And he said, Dave, you know, the last three years, you've had the joy. I love the way he said it. He goes, you've had the joy of walking with a lot of people through one of the most difficult stretches in human history. Talking about the pandemic and everything coming out of that. And he goes, what have you learned about the human heart in the midst of all of this chaos? And it is like one of those questions I'm like, dude, can't you just be normal? Can't you just start with with a simple question, like, I haven't thought about that. Like, why are you asking me this? But it did what a good question will do. It caused me to stop, caused me to think. And I'm like, man, what did, like, what did I learn about the human heart? What did I learn about my human heart in the midst of all the chaos we've gone through over the last couple of years? And, and this, this really simple thought just kind of came to the surface of my heart that I've probably, I've probably felt this before, probably thought about it. I don't know that I've ever articulated it quite this way. Uh, but this is what I thought when he asked that question. In the midst of all of this chaos, what have I learned about the human heart? I've learned that the human heart is easily shaken when the future feels uncertain. Like if I had to boil down like, what have I learned over the last couple of years? What have I learned about myself? What have I learned about my friends, my family, our church, the world at large? What, what have I learned is that the human heart is easily shaken when the future feels uncertain. And it's crazy what happens when the heart is shaken because if you're like me, if you're like uh, most people, when your heart begins to shake, whether on a personal level or a communal level, you begin grasping for things that will stabilize your heart. You know, it's like standing up in a canoe and your buddy begins to rock the canoe and, and you'll do anything to try to stabilize that canoe so you don't fall out. When your heart begins to shake, when your world begins to shake, you start grasping for things that will normalize and steady you. And the truth is, this makes your shaking heart really vulnerable to a lot of things. I think back to what happened to my heart and to our church and to the nation and to the nations in the midst of the last couple of years. Did you notice how susceptible the human heart becomes to believing lies when the heart is being shaken? Did any of you find yourself like going down some weird rabbit holes during COVID and believing some crazy things? I wanna ask you to raise your hands. Um, did any of you have any friends or family members that started believing some crazy things? Can I, can I get an amen to any of that? Like, do you have some friend? You're like, what? Like, isn't it crazy how you can see it in other people? You're like, all my friends were nuts. I was stable. I was rooted. Like, everybody else was insane. Like, but when your heart begins to shake, what happens? You, you become really susceptible to believing lots of things because when the world doesn't make sense, you will grasp for anything that makes sense. So we become susceptible to lies. We become susceptible and suspicious to not treating others well. Have you noticed how uh, over the last couple of years, man, there is more us versus them talk than in any other point I remember in my life. There's just this divide in the human heart. Like when, when the world is shaking, you don't know who to trust. You become suspicious of others. You don't trust others. You, you become more guarded with your heart and with 
how you really feel about things. Some of you have felt this so deeply. You're like, man, I have my same friend group, but I don't know if any of them really know what I think or feel or believe about anything because when the world shakes, you become scared and suspicious of how can I share my heart with others? It doesn't feel safe anymore. You become susceptible to lies. You become suspicious of others. And if you're not careful over time, you become really self-focused. When, when your heart begins to shake, when the world begins to shake, there is, this, there is this tendency not to dream bigger and further, not to be more generous, not to be more courageous, not to be more bold, but to get more scared, more insulated, kind of circle the wagons with your crew, whoever it is. And I'm, I'm not saying those things in and of themselves are wrong. I just go, this is what our hearts tend to do when the world around us begins to shake. And here's what I've learned over the last few years is when the future feels uncertain, the heart is easily shaken. And I've just found my, myself wrestling as we're coming out of this is how do we as followers of Jesus not feel, fall prey to all of the things that seem to capture the human spirit over the last couple of years? Like how do we, how do we steady and strengthen our hearts? Because without trying to be like a doomsday, what I really believe is that more shakings will come. On personal levels, on, on communal levels, um, uh, shakings that will be more challenging than anything you've gone through. And, and if you have not prepared your heart for the shaking, when the shaking comes, your heart will turn inward. Your fears will turn inward. Your obsessions will turn inward. And we don't become the blessing to the world that God has made us for. And, and I, was, I was just wrestling with that this week as I was sitting with my friend uh, over coffee. And, and I kept thinking about the beauty of Jesus in John chapter 13. And this is where I wanna begin this conversation, sort of this framework for us as we go into the fall thinking about the return of Jesus. There's this moment in John chapter 13, Jesus is about 33 years old when you come to this story. He's toward the end of his three years of his earthly ministry. He's hours away from being brutally beaten, crucified on a cross for the sins of the world, buried in a tomb that he didn't own, to three days later be raised from the dead to ascend to heaven. All of this was getting ready to happen, but here he is having dinner with his friends in John chapter 13. And, and I want you to just pay attention to the steadiness of Jesus' heart as he's getting ready to go through the most unbelievable shaking, not just of his life, but of human history. Listen, uh, or look at this with me. John chapter 13, starting in verse one. It says, it was just before the Passover festival. And Jesus, what? Somebody shout that word out with me. Jesus, Jesus knew. So everything that's getting ready to come, this, this shaking that's getting ready to unfold in Jesus's life, and the consequential steadiness and strength of his heart do not come about because he was ignorant to the moment that he was in. Jesus' strength was not the product of his ignorance. Jesus' strength was gonna come in the face of perfect revelation of what was getting ready to come. Verse one, it says, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and to go to his Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. Verse two, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Verse three, and Jesus what? Shout this out word with me. And Jesus, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things in his, under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I want you to just think about this stunning moment. Jesus 
his whole world was getting ready to be turned upside down. I would argue all of the cosmos were getting ready to be turned upside down. He was getting ready to walk through the greatest shaking the human heart could go through. And in that moment, he was not susceptible to the enemy's lies. He was not suspicious of the people sitting around the table with him. And he was not self-interested. His focus was clear, his generosity was bold, his imagination was wild and beautiful and brilliant, and it was rooted in a strength that only comes when a faith is firmly rooted. And I just found myself all week wrestling with like, where did Jesus find the strength in the midst of such shaking? Go back to verse three with me. I think there's two um, just beautiful and inescapable realities out of verse three. Look at this. It says, Jesus knew that all authority had been given him by the Father, and watch what it says right here. It says he knew where he had come from, and he knew what? And he knew where he's going. He knew where he'd come from, and he knew where he's going. Somebody say he knew where he had come from. He knew where he'd come from, and he knew where he was going. Come on, it's 11 o'clock. He knew where he's come from, and he knew where he's going. The strength that Jesus demonstrated in the present was the result of a faith that was firmly rooted in both the history and the future of who he was in the Father. He knew where he'd come from. He knew where he's going. And it gave him the courage and the imagination and the brilliance and the steadiness and the strength to live in a moment like nobody else could live. It's unbelievable. And I think a lot of times as Christians, especially in North America, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about a faith that's rooted in the past. And I wanna be really clear, this is a great thing. Like your faith has teeth, it, it's rooted in history. And so we study the story of Israel and the prophets and the Psalms and the life and the teachings of Jesus and his death, burial, resurrection, his ascension. We look at the early church and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it is important that your faith is rooted in the past. But somewhere over the last two or three decades, I'm scared we've lost our moorings in the future. (laughs) And so the truth is, a lot of us have developed a faith here in the Western context where every time you think about what it means to follow Jesus, you think about something from the past. And so we study these things without apology. We stand on these things without apology. But here's what I know is if your faith is only anchored in the past when your world begins to shake and the, and, and the future fills up for grabs, you will shake just like the rest of the world around you. And I believe now is the time, now is an opportunity for us to go, let's make sure both feet are firmly planted, not just in the past of what God has done, but in the future of what he'll do. The return of the Lord, the day of the Lord, judgment, heaven, hell, eternity, the new heavens, the new earth, the forever reign of King Jesus in a renewed earth, like all of these things in a renewed earth, um, all of these things are future realities. Now, we're, we're not gonna tackle all of them over the next 10 weeks. Over the next 10 weeks, we're really just gonna look at just the beginnings of, like, what does it mean to have a faith, not just rooted in the past, but anchored in this reality that King Jesus is actually gonna return? And how does that actually prepare you to right now, in the midst of any shaking, live how no one else will live? Like, how does that prepare you? How does it very practically unleash you to live into that? And so this morning is gonna be a bit different. So we're gonna take the next 20 minutes or so, and it's all gonna basically be an intro for the fall. And instead of me giving you a bunch of answers, I wanna give you five questions to wrestle with, and this will only serve you well if at some point over the course of this next week, 
you will get away with the Lord and you will really sit with some of these questions and, and, and let the Lord do some work. And so if, if you don't plow some of the ground, it's gonna be hard to follow over the next couple of months. And so here's what we're gonna do today. Today, through these questions, I want you to, to sort of become aware maybe of the paradigms or perspectives that you bring to this conversation. That's what we're gonna do today. What are the paradigms and perspectives we bring to this conversation? Next week, we're gonna look and go, okay, what are the things that Jesus tells us we need to pay attention to as the return of the Lord is coming our direction? And then we'll take the, the last eight weeks of the fall and go, and how do we prepare our hearts to encounter the Lord no matter what sort of shaking comes? So today is all about our paradigms. Next week is what do we need to pay attention to? And then the eight weeks after that. So how do we live in light of all of this. And so here's what I wanna do, just give you five questions. If uh, Get out your phones, get out something to take notes with, you have to sit with this this week. Here's the first question, is when you think about the end of all things, so I'm not just talking about you know, the end of college or the next five weeks or the next five years or retirement or even your life and death. When you think about the end of the human story as we know it, when you think about the end of all things, how do you feel? That's the first question, how do you feel? When you think about it, like even me just asking that question, some of you feel like I felt when I sat at the coffee table with my friend this week and it's like, I was not thinking you're gonna ask that question. That's how I feel. <laughs> like I, I wasn't prepared to think about that. But my question is when you really stop and when you, when you get through some of the mind-numbing distractions of the, the world we live in, what do you feel when you think about the end of all things? And depending on your circumstances in life, depending on your age, you know, the truth is some of you might not actually think about this ever. I remember when I was 19 years old, if you would have stopped me in September when I was 19 years old and said, Dave, what do you think about when you think about the end of all things? I'd go, I don't know. Like, I think Jesus is gonna come back and it's gonna work out great. Right now I'm trying to get a girlfriend. Like, that's like, that's, <laughs> that's like all I'm thinking about, you know? And, uh, and I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't think that much, but then, uh, a few weeks later, 19 years old, I remember getting a phone call from my dad. I remember exactly where I was standing. And he said, the biopsy came back and your mom has cancer. And it's crazy how things will shift. Sometimes it's your age, sometimes it's tragedy. Sometimes it's on a personal level, sometimes it's on a communal level. But guys, I love you enough to say this. You might not be thinking about the future right now, but at some moment, everything you think about the future, whether you want to or not, it'll come to the surface. And you have to think about it. And you'll, you'll learn in that moment what it is that you really feel, what you really think. And so when you think about the end of all things, what do you feel? You know, some of you, maybe, maybe you feel indifferent. You're like, oh, I don't know, I don't care. Like, you know, you never think about it. Some of you, when you think about it, you feel scared. I was talking to one of my friends this, this week and she was like, man, every time I think about the end, she's like, I just think about like a bunch of scary stuff. Some of you, these conversations, they, they like overwhelm you and you're like, I'll think about it for a minute and then I gotta get back to something lighter. Some of you are indifferent, some of you feel scared. Some of you are curious, you're like, man, I've got questions about this stuff, but it's freaky and kind of weird and none of my friends wanna hang out with me after I ask these sort of things. And so you're kind of like, who do I ask? Like, where, where do I go? And, and, and so maybe that's where you're at. You're curious, but you don't know where to look and where to ask and where to have these conversations. Some of you, like when you start thinking about the end, your hearts burn. You don't even know why. You're just like, oh, there's something here. 
And wherever you're at this morning, wherever you, you find yourself at on the spectrum as we come into the fall, I've been praying a really simple prayer over you out of Hebrews chapter 11, verse one. It'll be up on the screen. Uh, I love this. Whether you've been scared or indifferent or curious or your heart's been burning, I've been praying that the Lord would capture your heart with the reality of faith when it comes to the end of all things. I love Hebrews 11, the way it describes faith. Faith is not like this wishful thinking. It's not just this like, like blind trust in something you can't see. It says faith is what? Shout it out. Faith is? Confidence. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and it is what? Shout it out. Assurance. It's assurance. It, it's confidence and it's assurance in what we don't see. And, and one of the things that we're just praying is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, whatever it is that you feel when you come to this conversation, that the reality of faith would be firmly embedded in the soil of your heart and you go, man, I don't know, but when I think about the future, I feel confident and I feel assured. Faith, not just in the past, faith in the future, no matter what comes. And so one of the questions that I challenge you to sit with this week is, okay, what do you actually feel when you think about this? Second question is, what are the, what are the factors that are shaping the way you think and the way you feel about the end of all things? Second question, like, what are the, what are the factors that have shaped or are shaping the way that you think and the way that you feel about the end of all things. Because here's the truth, whether you believe you have a theology about the end of all things or not, every human being who is breathing and living has a theology. It might not be a correct theology, might not be rooted in the scriptures, not, might not be real, rooted in reality, but every single one of us are hedging our future bets on something or someone. And my, my question is, who or what factors are shaping the way you think and feel about the future? You know, for some of you, your views on the future, they've been entirely shaped by your social environment. Your family of origin, the church you grew up in, your friend group, your social media feeds, news articles, things that you're reading, things that are getting shared, a YouTube community, like whatever it is that you're connected in. Some of you, your views of the future have been, been shaped by your social setting. Some of your views of the future have been shaped by scientific discovery. You know, you're just looking at the world and you're going, okay, you know, here's what's happening with the climate. Here's what's happening with population. Here's what's happen happening with food crises. Here's what's happening here. Here's what... And so your view of the future is being largely shaped by scientific discovery. Some of you, it's social settings. For some of you, it's it's spiritual but non-Christian things. And so you're being shaped by new age movement or, or superstition or you're being shaped by um, things that have come out of different camps. And if you're anything like me, if you get really honest, most of us have developed our way of thinking, not just from one way of looking, but from maybe a variety of camps, a variety of places, a variety of things. And I wanna encourage you this week to just kind of stop for a moment and go, what is shaping or who is shaping your view of what's coming? And under, under that second question, uh, I sort of have a sub-question for you is, is how much weight are you giving the scriptures when it comes to thinking about the things ahead? Like how much weight is, is the word of God? How, how much weight does the voice of Jesus have in your life as you think about what's coming, whether you're thinking about it or not. And here's what's stunning to me. You know, in the New Testament, so we could do this with the whole Bible, but I'll just take the New Testament to make it maybe a little more manageable. In the New Testament, there's 260 chapters. Do you know how many times the end of the age, the return of Jesus, the day of the Lord, do you know how many times these things are mentioned in those 260 chapters? Approximately 318 times. 
So one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament speaks to things that the Lord has promised to do in the future. And yet recently there was a study that was done of sermons preached in the last year across North America and only 2% of any sermon preached from a pulpit in North America had anything to do with the prophetic future of the people of God. Like, oh man, one out of every 25 verses, 318 times in 260 chapters. What do you feel when you think of these things? Who or what is shaping your perspective and is it scriptural or not? Third question then builds off of that. If the scriptures speak of this so often, why do we as Christians avoid talking about these things? We can say this about a lot of topics, but like why, like if the scriptures speak so clearly to this, why do we avoid speaking about these things, especially in large settings like this? And I'll just give you a few of the reasons over my life that I've avoided talking about these things. Maybe this will help you as you're sitting with the Lord uh, this week and just kind of pondering your own story. I think sometimes we avoid these conversations because talking about the end of all things is just confusing. Have you ever like read the scriptures and you're like, I have no idea what that means. <laughs> I have no idea how this fits with this, fits with this, fits with this. And I don't know if you're anything like me, like I hate feeling stupid and so I will do just about anything I can do to avoid feeling stupid. And my wife will tell you, I'm not very good at avoiding looking stupid. I, I look stupid all the time. Nothing I can do about it. But there's this tendency in me, like anytime I come up against something that's confusing, I like to retreat back to something that feels known. And I think sometimes these conversations around the end of all things, they're just confusing, and so we sort of self-select out, and we say, let's go back to the things that, that make sense, things that matter to us, right? So maybe, maybe you've hit the eject button on these conversations because it's confusing. Maybe a second reason is because it's controversial. You've been hurt by people that have divided over these topics. Uh, you've seen how divisive followers of Jesus can be about things that are sometimes confusing and you're like, I don't wanna go down. Like some of you this morning, you're already like looking at other churches on your phone. You're like, next week we're trying Cross Point and the Church of the City and then the Belonging Co. And like, you know, you're, you're just thinking like, no way we're coming back to this freak show. Because for you, you sit here and you just go, man, this is this controversial, scary. Maybe, maybe that's what you're feeling uh, this morning. Uh, uh, welcome to the club, you're normal. <laughs> Maybe the reason we don't talk about these things is because we just don't wanna feel crazy. Like 2020 already ruined your family Thanksgiving. Like, you know, it's like, man, for some reason, like all of our conversations are filled with tension and, oh man, this is terrible. And the last thing we wanna do is feel crazy. Um, guys, spoiler alert, I'm just gonna say this as clearly as I know how to say, if you are actually a follower of Jesus, what you believe will feel crazy to the world. A hundred percent. Like if you really think about it, Dave, what do you believe? I believe that a guy who was fully man, fully God, 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, died on a Roman cross, three days later raised from the dead. All of my sins can be forgiven. My eternal future is secure. I don't have to fear judgment or the end because he is literally gonna come back through the clouds, stand on the earth, judge the living and the dead and establish a forever kingdom. Guys, that's nuts. Like, you're not gonna roll that out at the dinner party and everybody's like, cool, you wanna, you wanna hang, Friday, you wanna give a talk at our, our birthday party on Friday night? Like, as Christians, we're already feeling the crunch. Like, we all wanna fit in. Let's just name it. We all wanna fit in. And our beliefs already feel crazy. <laughs> and you start talking about the end of all things and you're like, oh, great, is this guy gonna try to get us to get guns and gold and like, you know, 
We're gonna like start passing out water purifiers at the back and it's like, there's that fear of looking crazy, right? It's just like, like, what are you doing? And so sometimes we avoid these conversations. I'll just give you one more, okay? Uh, I can just keep piling on. Like, I'm gonna give you like 50 reasons not to come back next week. Like, like why don't we talk about these things? Here's, here's another one for you. And this might be the most pressing in our American context is because if your life is comfortable, you have no reason to think about things that make you uncomfortable. If your life is comfortable, you have no reason to think about things that make you uncomfortable. <laughs> and so when you're well-fed and when the job is great and when your relationships are great and when the future seems great, you're like, why would I even stop to think about something that feels confusing and maybe controversial and may make me feel crazy? And like, why would I even stop and think about it? And when you're comfortable, it is really hard to stop and think about these things. But it's what I said earlier, whether you want this to be true or not, guys, whether you want to think about the future or not, a day is coming when the future will find you. And you have to, you have to decide. <laughs> like, where is my hope really rooted? Where is my life really rooted? And when the future feels unclear, the human heart is easily shaken. And when the human heart is easily shaken, we run to all sorts of things. I remember years ago when I was really beginning to pursue and think about the Holy Spirit for the first time. I had a whole laundry list of reasons and things that made me scared of jumping all in. But then there's just this nagging question, is what if, what if the promise is more, of more, is even better than all of the barriers and fears I have right now? What if the promise of more is better than all of the barriers and the fears that I have right now? And what I believe is that Jesus <laughs> wants to help walk all of us. Whatever your current paradigm is, whatever your current perspective is, I really believe the Lord wants to walk us graciously and gently through it because on the other side of every one of our objections is an unbelievable promise that will root you both now and forevermore. It will make you more generous, more bold, more creative, more brilliant, more helpful for the people around you. And it won't come just because you have a faith in the past, but a faith that's also standing in the future. So question one, what do you feel when you think about the end? Question two, what is shaping your thinking about the end? Question three, if the scriptures speak to it so much, why do we avoid it? Question number four, so what does Jesus have to say? What does Jesus have to say about all of this? And guys, there, is so, there are so many things, so many things that we could, could dig into and wrestle with. We're gonna, we're gonna take the whole fall just looking at the words of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus because the vision that he cast is so beautiful. But this morning, I wanna, I wanna end us by bringing us back to that picture in John chapter 13 and John chapter 14. So wish I had a whole sermon to teach on this, but here's, here's the brilliance and the beauty of Jesus. Is that when Jesus came to earth, fully God, he entered into the human story. He did not enter into the human story as a disembodied spirit. He, he came in the flesh. And he didn't just come as a person, he came as a Jewish man, and not just a Jewish man, but as a Galilean Jewish man. And so if you take the Gospels out of their context, you rob yourself of the ability to really understand the Gospels. And so in other words, what Jesus said and where Jesus said it helps you understand what Jesus was saying in the first place. 
And here's what's stunning to me, is two-thirds of everything we have recorded in the Gospels takes place in this little region of land called the, the Galilean region. In fact, all of his earliest disciples were not just Jewish uh, men and women, they were Galileans. Uh, if you remember on the day of Pentecost when the crowds described them, they go, these Galileans, because they had a unique culture, even within the Jewish people. They had a unique identity, even from the people around them. And so, so many of Jesus' metaphors, his teachings, his sermons, his sayings, only makes sense when you understand the context. Context plus content gives clarity. And you have to understand what it is that he's gonna say about the end. Here's what's so stunning to me when I, when I think about Jesus and what he says. You know, the beginning of his, his ministry or towards the beginning of his ministry, the, the first miracle that he ever performed was at a what? Do you guys remember where the first miracle was? Somebody shout it out. If you get it wrong, we'll mock you ruthlessly. So who has the courage? Where was his first miracle? Somebody shout it out. Yes, a wedding, the wedding at Cana, which was a Galilean wedding, okay? So maybe you remember the first miracle. This is some of your favorite story in the Bible because you know they run out of wine, Jesus shows up driving the beer truck. You're like, yes, that's my verse that gives me permission to drink mimosas and not feel guilty, you know, like. And guys, if that's, the, if that's your big takeaway from John 2, you've missed it, okay? But his first miracle was at the wedding, this Galilean wedding. And we're told that, the miracle itself was not just solving a problem, it was a sign of things to come. And the question is, what was, this, what was, this, what was it a sign of? In the Galilean culture, you gotta understand this, a wedding was like the most significant event that could happen in the Galilean region. There was all of these customs, all of these traditions, and as I tell you just a few of these, we could take an hour on this. I just want you to just think, where have I heard that in scripture before? Where have I seen this in the life of Jesus? And so here were the customs of a Galilean wedding is, is a, a man would leave his father's homeland and go to a distant land to find a bride. And he'd show up with his family and he'd, he'd find a bride and then they would literally, this was their tradition in the Galilean region, they would write out, it was called a new covenant. They would write out a new covenant for the union and the formation of these families coming together. And, and this man would take his soon-to-be bride and their families and they'd go to the city gates to the elders. That's where you would ratify a document. <laughs> it's where things would be made official. And this young man would read the new covenant of love over his um, soon-to-be bride, all of the conditions, and then if all of the conditions were good, he would pay a, a bridal price. Now, unlike the regions around Galilee, he was not paying for his wife. That's not what this was. This was an insurance plan. This was a, a deposit that would bless his fiance should anything happen to her fiance and he die, she knew she'd be set for the rest of her life. It was a down payment. He'd come from a distant land. He'd read a new covenant. He'd pay a heavy price. And then there was the moment where he would get down on a metaphorical knee. You know, in our culture, we get down and we, we, we put out a diamond ring. But in their culture, this young man, after the covenant had been read and the price had been paid and everything had been agreed upon, he would take a cup of wine and he would extend it to his soon-to-be bride and everybody would pause because in the Galilean culture, the woman had agency, which was very different from everybody around. She had the right to say yes or no. It wasn't her parents' decision. It wasn't just her community's decision. She had the right to say yes or no. And they would extend, it was called the cup of joy or the cup of covenant. And if she drank of it from that moment on, the husband and the wife were considered to be legally wed. Now this is the reason Jesus' parents, Mary and Joseph, when she was found to be pregnant, they were engaged, they had not been married in our eyes, but in their culture, it was a legal union, and so Joseph knew to get out of it, he had to do what? He had to get divorced. 
Because from the moment she drinks the cup, everybody knows what's happening. Now here's where the story gets so beautiful. The moment she drinks the cup, she would go off with her friends and she'd spend the next 12 to 18 months preparing for the return of her groom. She'd start getting her wedding dress ready, start getting her bridesmaids ready. They'd start preparing everything that they need. The the groom would go back to his father's house, his father's land. He would literally begin to build uh, onto the house of his dad or build a new structure on their, their father's property. And something that was unique to the Galilean wedding Um, situation was that unlike a normal wedding where you send out dates and you send out, you know, like, hey, here's when we're getting married. Nobody knew the day or the hour that the wedding was going to happen except for one person. Can any of you guess who was the only person that knew the day or the hour? It was the father, the father of the groom. (laughs) And this is the way the culture worked. They knew the season, They knew it wouldn't be five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. They knew the season, but as as it approached, there was going to be a moment where literally the bridesmaids would start sleeping with the bride in her home in case it came at any point. The groomsmen would start sleeping in the house with the groomsmen. And so the responsibility of the bridesmaid and the groomsmen was not to throw some raging party that you had to get the pictures offline afterwards. You know, it's like, that was not the heart. You were there to help them get ready for the moment. And then at some, mo- at some moment, the father of the groom would go in and he'd wake up his son with probably all of his groomsmen sleeping around him, usually in the middle of the night, and he'd say, son, your bride has made herself ready. You've done everything that needs to be done. Go get your bride. And they'd begin blowing horns, trumpets. The dudes would light torches. It's like a mob like moving through the town. People hear the bridal cry. They come out because they don't wanna miss out on the party because they know at the end of this is a seven-day feast. And whoever hears the cry and whoever joins in gets to be a part of the feast. And they'd show back up. And I, I just want you to just think about this imagery. Jesus, he comes from a distant land. He comes from his father's land. He enters into the human story. He comes looking for a bride. And here he is in John chapter 13, that story we just read, just hours before his heart and the whole world is shaken. And what does Jesus begin doing? He begins the proposal ceremony. He goes, this is the new covenant that I extend to you. He pays the bridal price for the human story, for all of humanity. He goes, I'm gonna stretch out my arms and he goes, I'm gonna die and I'm gonna bleed for you. I'm gonna pay the price. He goes, I'm gonna leave you the deposit of the Holy Spirit, the the, the inheritance, the insurance policy of what's to come. And then you have this moment in John chapter 14. He extends the cup of covenant. They receive the communion, which is them putting the ring on their finger. And then listen to what Jesus says. John chapter 14, verse one. It says, and it um, Yeah, there we go. It says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, but also believe in me. And in my Father's house, there are many rooms. If that were not so, would I not have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I'm going to prepare a place for you, I will. Guys, if you hear me say nothing else, hear this. He goes, and I will come back to take you to be with me that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas piped up. He said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Everything these Galilean men would have heard, they would have gone back to the wedding. They would have seen, and this is what Jesus was always doing. Jesus would take something they knew to help them understand, uh, to help them know something they didn't yet understand. And he goes, hey, you know how the wedding thing works. 
Here's the covenant, here's the price, here's the cup. If you drink of it, he goes, I'm going away and I'm coming back to make all things new. And guys, I'm just telling you, a faith that is just standing in the past is just easily knocked over. But the moment you begin to plant your foot in that reality, that he has not forgotten you, he has not fallen asleep on the job, he sees things as they are, he is, he is preparing, and the Father, at the Father's announcement, God the Father says, son, it's time to wake up and it's, it's time to come back and get your bride to church. How do you feel when you think about these things? What are shaping your views of these things? Why do we avoid talking about these things? What does Jesus have to say about it? Fifth question. Why do I believe? Why do I believe studying the end of all things will help you live more faithfully right here and now? And we're running out of time, so I'm just gonna do this very quickly. Three simple things I think happen when you really let your heart go here. Um, Number one, you live with a heart that is informed. You live with a heart that is informed. You know, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13 through 18, Paul says, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be uninformed about death and resurrection and the return of Jesus and judgment. He's like, I don't want you to be uninformed about these things. Look at verse 13 with me. He goes, because if you're uninformed, you'll end up grieving the way the world does. When the world shakes, you'll shake. So why are, why are we talking about these things? Because we believe as, as your heart gets informed from the scriptures, there will be a steadfastness in a world that is shaking. Second thing, it's not just about you being informed. In, in being informed, how do you live a life that's prepared? How do you live a life that's prepared? I love Revelation chapter 19, verse seven. Look at this, it'll be up on the screen. It says, let us rejoice, let us be glad, let us give glory to the Lord. Why? for the wedding feast of the lamb has come. And his bride, talking about the church, has made herself ready. Guys, here's what's so beautiful is the Bible begins with a wedding in Eden. Jesus' ministry begins with the wedding at Cana. His earthly ministry ends with a proposal ceremony at the Last Supper. And the end of the human story is not gonna be some great explosion, it will be wedding bells. Jesus goes, let your heart soak in this. (laughs) Rejoice, be glad. The wedding feast of the Lamb has come. And every hard thing that's gonna come in that season of preparation can be endured because you know that it ends in a wedding. I remember how I felt when Sydney and I were engaged and we were like moving towards that moment. It's like every hardship, every challenge, every it's like you can work through it when you know it's coming. Why do, I, why do I think this matters? Because I, I think it helps the heart be informed. It helps us know how to live um, uh, with a heart that's prepared. And then last but not least, it helps us live with hearts that are eager. Hearts that are eager. One of the last verses of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. The spirit and the bride say what? Spirit and the bride say come. Like this will be the cry of a mature church as we approach the end of all things, is the the people of God have not been lulled to sleep in our comfort. We are not blind by our fear and the controversy and the chaos of the world. Instead, our eyes are fixed on the returning king. We're doing what needs to be done. And our hearts, along with the Holy Spirit, go, come, Lord Jesus. 
Guys, I'm just telling you, the, the father is never gonna send his son back for a half-hearted, apathetic bride. The father's not gonna send his son back for a church that's like, yeah, life's great, thanks for coming, but we don't need you. And I think what's gonna begin stirring in us collectively and communally is gonna be this, this cry with the Spirit of God that says, Jesus, come. And so that's where we're gonna go this fall. You know, uh, this week I wanna challenge you, sit down and wrestle with what do I actually think, feel, and why do I think and feel those things as I think about the end? Wrestle this out. And then next week we're gonna open up Matthew chapter 24 and we're gonna go, okay, Jesus, what are the things we need to pay attention to as we look on the horizon towards your return? And then the rest of the fall is, Lord, how do we become the bride that has made herself ready? So I wanna invite you to stand up with me. Uh, here in just a moment, we're gonna receive communion. And as you receive the cup, I just wanna connect this dot for you. For those of you that are followers of Jesus, when you receive the cup and you receive the bread, every week you are reenacting a divine proposal. It's like you're standing at the gates with the elders going, I say yes to you, Jesus, no matter what. It, it is a reenactment of that unbelievable moment. It's a moment when you're receiving the promise and the down, down payment of what God is gonna do. Um, there's some of you here this morning that are not followers of Jesus, and I'm just gonna say, I, I wanna really encourage you to just stop and ask the question, where are you hedging your bets regarding the future? And I wish I could just give you some quick answer. I'm just saying, you gotta think about that, even if you don't think it's significant. At some point, whether you wanna think about the future or not, the future will find you. And it's worth just stopping and going, who knows the future? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna stake all of my claims on the one that came, that lived, that died, that went through the greatest shaking the human heart has ever seen, that rose from the dead, and has looked and said, I'm coming back. You know, how do we anchor ourselves there? And so if your soul is disrupted this morning, and you go, I don't know that my future is very secure. We'd love to talk with you. I'll be over there at the Respond Banner. There'll be some folks that would love to do that. Let's put our hands out in front of us with palms open up. Let's just receive what God has for us this morning. Jesus, we come to you with open hearts and open hands to receive the cup of joy and the bread of grace. Lord, would you steady our hearts in a world that is shaking and prepare us for the glorious moment when we see you face to face. It's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. I love you. Let's come up, let's receive communion. Circle your chairs up, talk together, pray together, confess together. If you wanna receive prayer, there's some men and women at the Respond Banner that would love to do that with you. Love you all very much.